Hello and welcome to episode three of the Project Edward 2023 podcast, My Role in the Safe System. My name's James Luckhurst and today I'm in Liverpool with Dr. Adam Snow from Liverpool John Moores University. Adam's going to be reflecting on the penalty point system for drivers, the totting up rules, and whether anything has changed in terms of reported abuse of the exceptional hardship plea opportunity. We'll also be considering the latest thinking on distractions in the company of Dr. George Yanis, who's a professor in traffic and safety engineering and director of the Department of Transportation Planning and Engineering at the School of Civil Engineering at the National Technical University of Athens. But all that in a few minutes. First, Dr. Adam Snow. Welcome, Adam, to the podcast. And please do what everyone's being asked to do and explain your role in the safe system. Well, I think my role really in the safe system is thinking about ways of making our responses to road danger more effective and uh, doing this through the evaluation of what works, what doesn't and why using, you know, kind of principles of academic rigor, um, academic studies, and uh, interpreting those results. Let's start then. Um, Why is it necessary to have a system of legal sanctions for drivers and riders as well? So I think this question is really asking why it's necessary to have a sliding scale of sanctions, really. Why do we why do we let these things almost slide really on the first attempt or the first the first offence? So I think the statistics speaks for themselves. So last year, 1,711 people killed on the road, um, well, approximately 30,000 seriously injured, another 100,000 on top of that slightly injured. Those that we know about that is with the slight injuries, because that's only what the police are called out to. So we're looking at approximately like five people a day dying in road crashes. There's a, a bit of work I've done recently shows on average about eight days a year in which there are zero road death days. Everyone else has at least one, if not more. Uh, and to put that into context, there are, there are actually more days in a year where there are 10 plus road death days than there are zero road death days, if that kind of, hope that kind of makes sense. Why do we have a system of sanctions? Or I suppose another way of looking at it is why is that different from kind of like the general criminal law, if you like? Because there's a tendency to see road traffic offences as something kind of slightly different for people. And I think it's the kind of underpinning of risk, really. And one of the things that people don't like, really, is the idea that the harm that comes from it is divorced almost from the offence itself. Now, what I mean by that is that you are punished rather than for the risk eventuating, i.e. for crashing or anything like that, you're punished for something that creates the risk of that crash, which, you know, in all fairness, in most of the time, doesn't necessarily lead to any negative outcome, but can and certainly does, you know, not infrequently lead to very negative outcomes. But you couldn't be punished for the act if it didn't have the negative outcome, could no one would ever know. No, that's true. And that is, again, one of the one of the issues, particularly with speeding enforcement, really, is that in reality, we probably all speed a lot more than we should and a heck of a lot more than is actually captured in official enforcement uh, actions. Um, so, again, I think that probably pays into people's minds in terms of their negative responses to road traffic enforcement in particular. Um, and there is certainly a, a large minority, shall we say, that are very anti-road traffic enforcement in the round because, again, because of concerns, I think the legitimacy of the system that kind of punishes behavior that hasn't eventuated a, a harm like it would do in criminal law. You know, if you're, a, you're going to do a burglary or even an attempted burglary, it's going to cause some harm around, along the line. If you do some speeding, the chances are it probably won't straight away. But, you know, that kind of beads a bit building then to your attitude to the road and to road safety, which eventually potentially could lead to much more serious and catastrophic injury. And there is no 
plan to this. You know, there's, there's nothing you can point out to say, well, because you sped, you know, 15 times in the last week, you're now 10 times more likely to have a crash. The chances are you'll just you'll never be in a position to know. It, it will just happen to you one day. And that's all we can point back and say, well, that's what caused it. So the more we can change those attitudes before that happens, the better. And that's, I think, one of the aspects of dealing with this problem, which is the enforcement aspect, if that makes sense. Looking at the system that we use, in your opinion, is it fit for purpose? Yes and no. I think what I would say is, I think we've re we're reaching a point, or we've already reached a point, whereby enforcement can deliver everything it can, and it can't deliver much more. In terms of the number of people dying on the road, the number of people seriously injured on the road, I think enforcement has delivered everything it can. That's not an argument to say we should do less. That's an argument to say we should do exactly what we're doing and keep doing it, uh, if not more, if we can. But I think we've probably... because because of the statistics and the number of deaths and number of serious injuries have plateaued really in the last 10 years. Nothing really has changed. You know, there's small fluctuations here and there. There are small drops. But I think really looking at education, looking at engineering and environment, the other kind of three E's to the four E idea, that they probably need more input now, really, if we want to kind of seriously um, reduce the number of people death, dying. I recently heard a government minister speaking and he said that we need to take the public with us where enforcement is concerned. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to happen, is it? I'm not aware of what the minister said, but I no doubt he, he will be aware of there is a significant resistance. I'm not saying it's a majority resistance by any stretch of the imagination, but there is significant resistance to increased speeding, the, you know, the reduction of speed limits to 20 miles an hour in Wales as well. There's been a, a bit of an online backlash, if you like. How real that is in the real world, I don't know. I, I suspect it's not as high as people think. In the, my experience of dealing with people kind of offline, shall we say, when it comes to speeding, is that most people do support speeding enforcement and actually want more. It's not that they want less. Um, but then when that gets into this kind of national, kind of global conversation based on you know, online comments and the like, you tend to attract the more outrageous elements of it, shall we say. So does it, you know, is, is, there, is there illegitimacy in the system? I don't think so, no. I mean, as I say, you are quite lucky that you've been convicted of a criminal offence and you're given, you know, potentially go and spend hours just learning about speeding to make you safer. That's, you know... I'm sure there's many <laughs> robbers and burglars out there that would love that opportunity. So I'm not quite sure how we can say that it's necessarily illegitimate. I, there is always in the background of all of these conversations is the idea of revenue raising. All I can say from an academic perspective, the, just, the evidence just is not there. It is not there that it can be used as a revenue raising. There's not to say there's not anecdotal evidence that some officers in some authorities think, oh, I could do this now to raise some money. That's not to suggest that doesn't happen occasionally. But overall, it really doesn't. Adam, the papers like using headlines about mums-to-be with 66 points on their licences still being allowed to drive. To what extent does this undermine the integrity of the system? Uh, if you look at the data on driving licences in uh, England and Wales, so there's roughly about 51.6 million driving licences that have been issued. So about 94% of the population, of adult age population, has a driving licence, be it provisional or full driving license. Majority have a full license. Um, there is some bizarre data. If you look at the DVLA issue data each year, issue statistics on the number of points on people's licenses. So there is one female in the country at the moment from the Greater Manchester area who has 126 points on their license. And there is one male aged 27 who has 63 points on their license. The question then becomes, why have they got those points on the license and why aren't they banned? But it's not any, as easy to answer as that one. Because the way in which the DVLA present their data means that there is an overlap between someone being disqualified 
and someone having points on their license, i.e. you've been ordered to be disqualified for drunk driving, you've reached that ban, you come to the end of, say it's an 18-month ban, you've took your extended retest, and then you apply for a license again. Those points will still be on your license, which, which is exactly what we want. So it's good that they're still on the license because your insurers are going to want to know that, obviously, because you are a very high-risk individual. If you've got 126 points on your license, there's something going wrong there. So it's important that we do have that information. So the idea that we do have people driving around regularly, we know with 60, 70, 80 points on the license, I'm not sure that the evidence is there to suggest that is actually happening. What it is, is just the way in which DVLA collect their statistics, I think is what we're seeing. Um, although obviously there is the facility, which we might talk about in a minute, about how you can keep your license if you're over 12 points, so-called exceptional hardship defense or special reasons. So yeah, um, just in relation to that one individual in Manchester with 126 points on, the only thing I've got to say as well, which probably needs more research at the moment is Greater Manchester, I know, have had issues with what are called NIP farms. So notice of intended prosecution farms, which is whereby basically someone agrees to provide an address to take points. And I wonder if this that is part of that as well. This is one individual who is pretending to be a lot of other individuals in order to take their points. You know, that is a very serious offence, a very serious criminal offence of perverting the course of justice, and you will get prison sentence for that if you do it. So I just wonder whether that might be part of that that particular scenario as well, some of these more higher ones. But I think a lot of it is just the legacy of the data, really, that's published, and it's not as accurate as it could be. We will come back and talk to Adam Snow and and go into a bit more detail on exceptional hardship in just a few minutes. But time now to turn our attention to distractions for drivers and in particular to future insights into real-time monitoring of driver distraction. I spoke about this to Dr George Yanis from the National Technical University of Athens. There is a great potential uh, in technology today for real-time monitoring of driver distraction. This can happen mainly in two ways. One way is uh, through uh, in-vehicle cameras, which uh, monitor driver status, including any distraction from inside or outside the vehicle. But also there is um, the possibility for uh, telematics uh, through mobile phone uh, of the driver, where, uh, among other um, indicators, uh, the mobile phone use is uh, monitored. Uh, in, two, in both cases, of course, there are issues of uh, the driver to allow to be monitored. So we need guarantee that the data are used uh, for the right purpose, to give feedback to the driver uh, and not to the police and to provide uh, suggestions, uh, gamification, incentives to, to improve uh, driving behavior and, uh, of course, uh, driver distraction on one hand. And on the other hand, um, we have seen that uh, these systems can go up to changing the behavior uh, and lead to up to 30% of uh, less uh, um, crash, uh, less crashes. The future is a combination of technology, but also behavioral uh, education uh, measures. Uh, we have to go to to a better culture of driving, assisted by technology, but also through the change of cultural patterns. So um, it is a combination of two, which always uh, brings uh, most of the results. The, and the one uh, assists the other. That was Dr. George Yanis from Athens. 
We go back to Dr. Adam Snow now. Here we are in Liverpool, concluding our conversation on penalties for drivers. Let's talk then about exceptional hardship. Firstly, I should say that exceptional hardship is a way of keeping your licence once you have obtained more than 12 points on your licence. So this is what's known as the totting up procedure, which is probably what most people know it as. Once you get a fixed penalty notice for whatever it might be, uh, speeding is the most typical and most common, So, or no insurance might be another one. You get six penalty points for that on your licence through a fixed penalty. Um, or speeding, you'll get three, which means you have a number of offences you can commit before the question has to be asked, are you still fit to be a driver? And so once you get to nine points, say, for instance, with speeding, you've got three speeding offences. The next one you get, if it's within the relevant period, which will be three years, the next one you get will basically require you going to court and you'll be prosecuted to the magistrate's court. And then the magistrates will have to decide whether you should keep your license beyond those 12 points. And that's what's called exceptional. Well, sorry, that's they will. Have Don't to, they decide the circumstances that would allow you to keep it because you would automatically lose it, wouldn't you, with 12? Yes, you would. So the general position is... All things being equal, you should lose your license once you reach 12 points. However, if you can show exceptional hardship, then not hardship, the act says, if you can show not hardship, but exceptional hardship, then you may be allowed to keep your license. Now, there is another process uh, under, this is all under uh, a provision called Section 35 of the Road Traffic Offenders Act 1988. So there there are a number of reasons why you can keep your license. The two main ones are um, you argue exceptional hardship or there is something that the court sees that they believe will mitigate the normal circumstances of the outcome, which is a disqualification. So there you might be looking at something, if you are being found drink driving, if you've been drink spiked. Potentially, if the court looks at that, and it is completely at the discretion of the court, if the court looks at that, they might say, okay, that will mitigate the normal circumstances. And so we won't impose a penalty or we won't impose a disqualification in those circumstances. So they can do that. And there is case law where they have done that. Exceptional hardship, on the other hand, is more about what is the effect is going to have on the actual person who's, who's been driving, essentially. So again, they have to prove that it caused them exceptional hardship. The only way you can do that is being going into the witness box. So you'll go into the witness box and then your defence, typically solicitor, will examine you and to try and tease out these points that show exceptional hardship. Now, what we can say about exceptional hardship is basically there is no def- definition of what it is from the case law. The closest we get, bizarrely, is from a family law case. It's nothing to do with road traffic. It's a case called Fay and Fay, or Fay versus Fay. Um, and this was a divorce which, at the time, you had to prove um, that you could dispense with the three-year qualifying period for a divorce, for um, separation, if you could show it would cause you exceptional hardship. So then the courts had to determine what the word exceptional hardship meant. And this was the definite, well, they, they said basically there wasn't a definition of it. So any attempt to define the meaning would be a betrayal of a deliberate imprecision favoured by Parliament. So Parliament is being deliberately imprecise by using exceptional hardship to allow for all sorts of circumstances. But it must mean or must be shown to be something out of the ordinary. So what does that mean then? So you will typically hear someone say, oh, he just said he'd lose his job. And therefore that was exceptional hardship. Again, there is case law to say that is not enough on its own. Just losing your job will not save you from being banned. Um, having some effect on your family, maybe causing family breakdown. Again, that on its in itself is not enough. It has to be an exceptional hardship on your family. And you, know, you may end up with a situation whereby you are facing loss of your job, irretrievable breakdown of your marriage. Maybe you'll lose your children as a result of it. Then that could then be considered exceptional hardship as a result of this one penalty. But the courts have said repeatedly that this is a penalty. It's not 
a an opportunity just to kind of be nice, so to speak, or to give people another chance. Disqualification is a penalty and it should be used as such. Now, driving while disqualified, that takes us, you know, let's assume these disqualifications got there and uh, that can attract up to six months in prison. Do you know how often courts actually impose that sentence? Yes, we do, actually, because there is data produced by the Home Office um, who um, it's up to 2022. We're always a year behind with statistics um, when it comes to official statistics. Anyway, so in 2022, there were 9,997 people who'd be convicted and sentenced for driving while disqualified. The conviction rate was 91%. So most people who are prosecuted get found guilty. Um, it's not a difficult offence to prove, to be honest with you. So the breakdown then of uh, the various types of punishments you can get, you get so about 19% of those, so about 20%, so that's roughly what, about 1,800 people will be sentenced to immediate custody. That is, they go to prison that day. Um, or another 1,800 people, so we're about 40% now, 20% um, overall, but another 20% will get what's called a suspended sentence, whereby it's past the custody threshold, which is the, the phrase that the judge will use, i.e. it's so serious that only custody can solve it, but then they suspend the sentence for whatever reason it might again be because of course hardship or whatever reason it might be there are there's lots of guidance on when they can and can't suspend the sentence so so 40 percent then pass that custody threshold about half of those that 40 percent or 20 percent get immediate custody 20 percent get a suspended sentence the most common um punishment by far is the community order that gets about 40 on its own so 38% received a community sentence, so that's something like unpaid work. And then about 26% or so, a quarter, will receive a fine. So I can give you some indication of what that actually looks like. So the average custodial length of sentence is about 2.9 months. So what's that, about 12 weeks is the average custodial sentence. And the average fine is about £315 fine, which... £315 fine in the context of motoring is not a lot nowadays. What we can say is that custody has been reducing as a proportion of all offences sentenced and um, the fine has been increasing. The community order has pretty much stayed the same. So when I say the fine is increasing, sorry, the proportion of people fined have increased, not the amount of the fine, although the amount of fine does increase each year. So, yeah, and... I think in terms of going forward, you're, I don't know if uh, you'll have seen it this week. So the senior presiding judge for England and Wales criminal courts has pretty much encouraged judges not to send people to prison because we're pretty much full. Um, so that will no doubt ne in next year's figures, i.e. this year's figures, <laughs> will lead to a reduction again in custody for this offence. It does feel, and from the conversation we've had, that there is a certain element of inconsistency and unpredictability in, in all of these punishments. Um, is there a benefit in having that? So I think there's two ways to think about consistency, and this is the way it's been done in sentencing research over the years, really. There is consistency of outcome and consistency of process. Consistency of outcome is always going to be very difficult because it's very difficult to kind of compare two cases. You know, you get one person who's up for exceptional hardship. They seemingly have the same thing. You know, they've both been driving at 36 miles an hour in a 30, but it's their fourth or fifth offence. And then you start to think, well, that person's got a family. That person's got a family. Why was it exceptional hardship for that person's family, but not for this person's family? And so it's very difficult then to look at consistency of outcome because you do end up with these strange disparities. But once you start kind of really investigating the cases, they become explainable or explicable. 
we can understand perhaps why the judge felt differently at the particular time. What you look for in sentencing instead is what you call consistency of process. Are they going through the same process of sentencing? Are they taking into consideration the same things? And in that regard, we are generally quite good in uh, England and Wales because we have the Sentencing Council that issue guidelines, which basically tell judges and give them an indication of, one, what they should do in terms of determining the seriousness of the offence that's in front of them, what it does in terms of the culpability, you know, how culpable are they, how seriously bad was the, the their behaviour, and then it will set ranges from, you know, it's a 30 miles an hour, they were going 90 miles an hour in a 30 miles an hour zone, clearly very high culpable. If there was a crash as well, there's very high harm, so you're looking at the very top end of the range, and it'll give you a range from something like, you know, a high-level community order to 52 weeks custody or something like that. And that consistency of process is what we're very good at. The consistency of outcome, I think, is always going to be very difficult. And I don't think it's a system you want, really. A, consi- a pure consistency of outcome, I don't think would be a perfect system because it can't take into consideration those difficult questions. Take the drink driving example where someone's been drink spiked. You should be aware as a normal person of whether your driving is impaired. And so most of the courts will look at that and think, well, okay, you're still going to get a ban. But that doesn't mean you should then basically get the same ban as someone who just went out and had the same amount of alcohol, for instance, or took the same drug and then went and drove at the same time. Their culpability is different. But if we're just going to look at the headlines, then you start thinking, well, where's the consistency of outcome there? But it's the consistency of the process that matters. They've both been through the same process, both looked at the same guidance, and therefore were able to kind of come to a decision that was just in that particular case. And so I think that's where you wouldn't really want a consistency of outcome in sentencing. Although it might intuitively appeal, I don't think it'd be very effective in terms of punishment or in terms of deterring people. Dr Adam Snow, thank you so much for your insight and spending some time with us, a fascinating conversation, which has sadly come to an end. And that concludes this third episode of the Project Edward 2023 podcast, My Role in the Safe System. Please don't forget to like us, to to share the podcast and tell all your friends to, to have a tune in as well and to download it and share it too. We'll be back with episode four next week as we continue our eight-week series running right through till the middle of December. But for now, from me, James Luckhurst, it's goodbye. Goodbye.